TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? <clears throat> the real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. Hello, everyone. You're listening to After Hours. I'm Felix. I'm me here. And it's just the two of us. And it's the day after Halloween. Do you have chocolate overhang? Oh, yeah, <laughs> completely. Sugar overhang. And it lasts for a while because it's addictive, right? So then you keep <laughs> eating candy for quite a while. Oh, yeah, that's true. And it's so good. Do you have a particularly epic Halloween memory in your life? Well, I live on a street that is closed off for Halloween. And it sort of attracts families throughout the neighborhood. And I tell you, it must be, I don't know, hundreds, maybe thousands of kids. Fantastic. <laughs> so we always buy all this candy and we think, okay, this is going to be way more than anyone can eat. And then within an hour or two, we're out of candy. So somehow our <laughs> expectations don't really evolve over time. Yeah. What about you? I have come to appreciate this holiday more and more. I think there was a period of time when I didn't really care that much about it. Yeah. Obviously, when I was young, I cared about it. And now some of my proudest parenting moments have been with Halloween costumes. Oh, and this okay. year, interestingly, the two older ones have kind of decided to go their own way, okay. which is both fantastic because it has saved me a fair amount of labor and completely <laughs> and utterly heartbreaking. So I'm both extremely happy and a little bit sad, oh. but it's great. It's a great holiday. It reminded me, I saw Barbie a little while ago and I had almost forgotten about it. And then once you see the sea of pink, like, <laughs> oh yeah, Barbie. Exactly. All right, good. So do we have a scary topic? Maybe scary. I'd love to hear your <laughs> views about Tesla, which I think can be a scary story. Yeah, I mean, the developments in the EV market are fascinating. What about you? So I have a little bit of something which is not scary, but incredibly good news. There's some new data that came out about household finances, especially in the US. Yes. And it's really, really striking. So I'd love to get your views on that too. And boy, do we need good news. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Okay, Felix, Tesla and the EV market. This was kind of heralded as a big year for the EV markets. And I'm curious, what do you make of the news we're getting, especially from Tesla and others? And actually, not so easy to read the news. Yeah. I think I can tell two very different stories. One story is, I've seen this movie before. As an industry matures, growth rates come down from, say, 60% last year to 50% now. So the industry is still growing very quickly. But at the same time, we have lots and lots of entry. There's about 50 models available right now. 
10 of which were introduced just this fall. What happens in a quickly maturing industry? The industry leader often cuts prices because guess what? The source of competitive advantage goes from customer value to at cost advantage. Right. And in that sense, it's really good news for Tesla. So for instance, if you look at labor costs, theirs are probably around $45, $50 all in. And then if you compare that to Ford, it's more like 65 so about a $20 difference. And then with the latest union contract, in all likelihood, that difference is going to get even bigger. And so in some sense, it's a solid position for Tesla. They move from emphasizing customer value to now competing on costs. And there's every reason to believe that they can do this very successfully. <laughs> and then looking at the same data, I can also tell a much more pessimistic story. I look at the Tesla lineup and it seems old now. It's like nothing new has really happened. The Cybertruck, which we expect to finally see deliveries this fall, I think full production is now pushed off to 2024, 2025. Who knows? That entry-level model that finally would bring price points markedly below $40,000 or so at least my current reading of Elon Musk's announcement is way off and maybe that plant in Mexico will never even really happen. Yeah. What do you make of it? How do you read the data, here? Well, so first there's Tesla and then there's the broader EV market, right? So the first thing about Tesla is just to your point, Felix, the price cuts have been massive. And they've really been very large and they've been very fast and they've been fairly frequent. That combination of things, yeah. it's not just one price cut, it's several price cuts and it's been happening relatively quickly. And it's not clear that they're getting a demand response. So the question is, are you getting quantities moving? And that remains a little bit unclear. And of course, when you cut the price dramatically of these durable goods, you influence all kinds of things like the used car market and the ability to kind of want to buy a used car versus a new car. So all kinds of things kind of get a little screwy. And I've been struck by how Tesla approaches price cuts, not as a marketing company, because they're not, yeah. <laughs> but basically as a production company. Yes. If you listen to the way they talk about the business, it's all about 400,000 units, you know, whatever it is, and we push them off the lot. It's a completely a production mentality. And so that mentality, when you run into competition and you run into maybe softening demand, you got to get 400,000 units off the truck. Yeah. You just have to keep going. And so I'm a little bit worried about what it does for Tesla, but I'm also worried about what it does for the EV market generally, Felix, because there we've also seen some remarkable signs. So mm -hmm. one answer is the market gets a little bit more competitive. That can be great news for the consumer. It can be great news for the market. It can be great news for everything. Yeah. But the alternative story is that the EV market is hitting a little bit of a road bump and Tesla's struggling with that, but so is GM and so is Ford and so is Mercedes. And those data points make you a little bit more worried that maybe one of a couple of things is true. One is maybe Tesla's screwing up the market for everybody, <laughs> or there's something going on macroeconomically, or the third is there's something going on more generally with the development of this nascent market. And so I'm curious what you make of those announcements and what of those three hypotheses you think might be true. <laughs> yeah, so hard to say. I mean, the first thing that I say maybe 
It's sky high expectations, of course. Exactly. The market grew 70% last year. So now we get a slowdown from 70 to 50%. Mm -hmm. Show me some other market that grows by 50%. And we're in a mild panic that might be a little premature. So that's my first response. Mm -hmm. Also, because interest rates have to have an influence on the demand for new vehicles. The more disquieting possibility that you allude to me here is that we've basically made predictions off of early adopter numbers. The early enthusiasts that really love the idea of driving an EV, and maybe their behavior is dramatically different. Yeah. One thing that I find really interesting in Tesla data is before people buy their first electric vehicle, range anxiety is one of the biggest things that people worry about. Because you imagine, and I think you read the newspaper stories that go along with it, what if I do this cross-country trip? Which, of course, in reality, you will (laughs) never really do. But still, it's like something you worry about. The moment you have this vehicle, that issue goes completely away. It might have been not such a big hurdle for the early adopters, and they might be a really huge hurdle for late adopters. One data point that's consistent with this is that hybrid is picking up again. Right. Each of these explanations is plausible. Your first one, I think, is exactly right, which is the price points matter. And in particular, in the SUV space, which matters a lot in the US, ICE is still relatively cheap relative to the EVs. And so that matters. Musk has said that the interest rates have been massive. And he has suggested that they matter a lot for people buying. And we know that people finance their cars a lot. But I, too, think your third explanation is important to think through. Because it hasn't just been Tesla, it's been Ford and GM and Mercedes and even, for example, Hertz, which had a (laughs) remarkable report (laughs) because they had committed to buying and they did buy. And then guess what? Their fleet got depreciated a lot because of the price cuts, which hurt them. But then repair costs were high and they got really worried about repair costs. So I think your final possibility that there's something going on after you peel away the early range anxiety is maybe more persistent than we would have expected. And I think there is this issue about quality that's raised in the Hertz report, which is super interesting. I never really thought about this, but these cars are heavier. They have more torque because of the nature of their acceleration. And so what Hertz says is we actually have a lot more repairs than we expected. And then we do on ice cars. And so that's an additional wrinkle. And Let me just say one last thing, which is, and to your point, Felix, expectations were out of control. But just to be clear, you know, it's supposed to come to like 50% of annual sales relatively soon, like in 2030. And it's at eight. So there is distance to be traveled here. And then, of course, the final piece of this, Felix, that I think is completely fascinating is something that we did an episode on, which you're urging a while ago, which is BYD. BYD, as far as I can tell, just continues doing so well to just bang it out of the park. And now people think of that as a China story, meaning how does Tesla compete with BYD in China? But look in Australia, look in Asia, look in Sweden. I mean, BYD is just killing it. And so that also suggests that in a very cost conscious market, (laughs) that may be the producer who really ends up winning in a big way. Yeah. And this is maybe not such great news for the legacy companies in the U.S. So if you look at 
the new Ford labor contract, that will probably raise wages from $65 an hour all in to close to $80, $85 or so. Right. That's about $1,000 per vehicle, roughly speaking. And this is in an environment where probably the profitability of electric vehicles for Ford and GM doesn't really rival the profitability of their traditional vehicles. So in some strange sense, the slowdown in the transition might actually shield the legacy car makers for a little while, of course, at the expense of longer term prospects. And you already see it, the delay in the openings of new factories, right. the delay in bringing new models to the market. All of this says the future of EVs is many, many new companies that we haven't really considered traditionally. Maybe Tesla, certainly BYD. Yeah. It seems that the market goes from never really have been such a great industry from a profitability point of view to potentially being quite worse, which then... If I look at the 800 plus billion dollar market cap of Tesla, ooh, that really gives me pause. So if you want to hasten the transition and you want to get over this hump, yep. I can imagine a couple of things that different people could do. So one suggestion that I think is kind of interesting is that Tesla has never spent money on marketing and sales. Yeah, I don't think you've ever seen a Tesla ad. And so one answer is, well, maybe we need to stoke consumer demand that way. The second possibility, Felix, is, well, wait a second, maybe instead of giving away $7,500 with a tax credit at the point of purchase, we should be doing things with charging stations. Yeah. We should really, at a national level, be thinking about charging stations. I don't know. I'm curious of which of those two you think that would help, or <laughs> do you have another way to think yeah. about hastening the transition? Charging stations, I think, would go a long way to address range anxiety. I thought it's very interesting that BP committed to buying about $100 million worth of chargers from Tesla. Mm -hmm. So it seems that big companies that have a tendential exposure to EVs are now getting into the game. I think that could make a big difference. I think it now looks like, just like in Europe, we're going to get one standard for charging, which is the Tesla standard in the right, US. which is huge. Which I think for the market as a whole is fabulous for Tesla drivers who are anxious about the longer wait times. If the superchargers are used by everyone, not so clear whether that's really a big competitive advantage. But I thought in addition to Hyundai, which now has the problem that they're excluded from the $7,500 subsidy that many consumers will get, they have opted to throw in an at-home charger for free. Right. So both the charger and then I think some of the installation cost. And I thought that was very clever. You know, it's just one of the many nuisances of making the transitions as a private household. And frankly, we will never really need the number of gas stations because as a practical matter, most people will charge their electric vehicle at home most of the time, if that's possible, if you have a garage. So that's maybe a clever way of removing some of the uncertainty about what it means to own an electric vehicle. Mm -hmm. So final verdict, are you up on Tesla, down on Tesla? What's your sense? Well, I've been down on Tesla for a while, so I don't know if I can change that position. <laughs> okay. But I think the EV market, I was also extremely optimistic about. I think last year, it was one of my predictions. And I think I'm a little bit more cautious about the speed of that. Okay, These hybrid vehicles are super interesting. 
And just the caution of the different automakers on this suggests to me that things will take longer. Are we going to go there? Yes. Might the path take longer? I don't know. I'm revising my expectations. What about you, Felix? I think I remain quite optimistic. And one reason is that, yes, you do have these early adopter phenomena that then lead you to be overly optimistic. But at the same time, the moment your neighbor has an electric vehicle and you see the neighbor go to work and not be stuck at home every day, I think perceptions of these products can change quite quickly. Yeah, that's true. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks Running Shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Go 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. So me here, consumer finances, what's new? Well, it's such an important topic for many people because of the way we think about our own financial health. But I wanted to talk a little bit about a report that came out because it's kind of the gold standard of reports on consumer finances okay. that the Federal Reserve Board puts out. It's called the Survey of Consumer Finances. And it just came out and it's a triennial survey. So they do it every three years. And it's just so rich with data and high quality data. And the news is, I don't know, Felix, to me... Amazing Positive, and flabbergasting. Right? Yes. Yeah. Really <laughs> and amazing. so let me just walk you through some of the numbers. So what happened to median net worth for our families in the U.S. in those three years from 2019 to 2022? And the answer is it went up by 37%. Wow. And it's now close to $200,000. Yeah. What about average net worth? Average net worth. I don't know. Just sit down. So average <laughs> net worth over that three-year period went up 23% and is now close to $1.1 million. It's amazing. When you think about that, the average household net worth in excess of a million dollars, who would have yeah. thought? Even the median household is at close to 200, and that's up 37% in three years. And by the way, those gains in wealth were actually fairly well spread out across the income distribution. Yeah. They were fairly well spread out racially. They were fairly well spread out in lots of different ways. Now, that doesn't, of course, mean everyone gains the same amount of wealth, <laughs> right. but percentage-wise, yeah. we actually have, if anything, a narrowing of wealth distribution. Income actually has a slightly different story, which is also quite positive. So average income grew in that three-year period by 15%. To almost one hundred and forty five thousand dollars, and this includes the COVID period. Yeah. Twenty million jobs disappear, and yet incomes exactly that's right. really amazing. Even at the median level, grew by three percent. So less the top decile, which is kind of interesting to think a little bit about. Felix, yeah. 
the median income in the top decile is now 380. The average income in the top decile is 690. Wow. Here, it's not so evenly distributed. Yeah. So here, for <laughs> those who think that college is a bad investment, the data is just so striking. All the gains to the college educated. Yeah. And also racially, a little bit more emphasizing the white population. So it's just kind of a staggering set of data on how healthy American households are financially. And I don't know, I have so many different reactions to this, Felix. I'm curious, what do you make of all this news? The numbers are amazing. In particular, thinking back, if you had asked me, what's the financial, the economic, the business story of the last couple of years, I would have said, oh, you know, there was this thing called COVID and it was incredibly difficult. And we were so worried that businesses wouldn't get workers back. So it's literally like one difficulty after another. And then, of course, high interest rates yeah. that make life more difficult for many households. And yet... The numbers are just amazing. Even <laughs> the financial health, if you look debt, basically, has exactly. not really moved over this time period. Yeah, 66% of American households own their home. About two-thirds have retirement plans and so on and so on. So yeah. if you're thinking, why is the economy doing so well, even though we have these high interest rates, part of the answer has to be actually the average financial picture so much more positive than you might have expected. Exactly right. I have so many weird reactions. I want to start at like 50,000 feet, Felix, with you, which is, I think one reaction I had is the U.S. is just so staggeringly rich. For a country of this size to be generating GDP per capita numbers that it does, it's just staggering. Yeah. I don't know how else to say it. And sometimes yeah. you have to like step back and just think hard because if you just looked at GDP per capita relative to the other large countries... It's just amazing. The second reaction I had, of course, is related to yours, which is just how good it is. The third is, then why are people so upset? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. How do you make sense of what is kind of clear in the polling data, which is people don't seem to be thinking that they're doing well. They seem relatively upset about things. And the final reaction is, well, how did it happen? And I think there's two big things we have to think about. One is housing. Yeah. So housing values just go up so much during this period, which is a manifestation of low interest rates, but also some COVID dynamics with people moving around and restricted supply and then lots of demand. And then second, at the low end, you know, remarkable assistance in the bottom deciles, they're going from like having $1,000 to having $5,000. <laughs> That's a huge difference. Mm -hmm. But it also is largely about some of the programs we saw. Yeah. And so as amazing as this news is, there's a part of me that also is like, wait a second, what happens next? Is there a shoe to drop with housing prices and with the disappearance of those programs that'll make us revisit this and the next survey of consumer finances comes out and it won't be quite the same picture? Do you know what I mean? Yes. Maybe I can go back to something that you said that I find completely puzzling as well. Given these numbers, people really have a view of the economy that is completely at odds with what is actually happening. So I saw a recent survey where half of respondents said that unemployment is at a 50-year high, <laughs> when in fact it's the lowest since the 1960s. I still read about the Great Resignation at a time when labor force participation is higher than it has been in about 20 years. How can it be that the fundamentals are so good? And then at one at the same time, 
people's individual experience of this economy couldn't be more different from the story that the numbers tell. One of the things that I find striking, and this is true across all the surveys, is the partisan divide. Yes. Whether you are Democrat or Republican has a huge influence in how you think about where we are in the cycle, has a huge influence on whether you think about we're on the right track or not. I think that points to sources of information that obviously vary between these two camps. Mm-hmm. What television program do you watch? What newspaper do you read? That gives you a completely different perspective. That is a dramatic failure in the media market. Yeah, We can disagree about just about everything, but we can't really disagree meaningfully about is inflation getting worse or is it getting better? Are incomes going up or incomes going down? In some sense, we have less shared reality than we used to. And it shows up in very stark fashion. This is one of many examples. Yeah. And there's, I think, two ways to think about that, both of which are embedded in what you said. And then I'll give you a third way. One is literally that politics are driving your impressions of the economy. Yeah. If your party's not in power, then you are obviously upset about the way the economy is, no matter what the economy (laughs) is actually doing. The second is... I think on news and media, like this is just a manifestation of fake news and manifestation of phenomena where information is not being disseminated in clear ways and no one trusts information. And so if you're told that the inflation rate is coming down, you don't believe it because you've been conditioned not to believe these kinds of things. I think the third possibility I want to just raise with you, Felix, is I do feel like there is a little bit of a politics of victimization going on in the US, but maybe more broadly, which everybody feels like they are not getting what they deserve. And politicians are breeding that sense of, look, it isn't as good as it should be. And that person over there is getting things they shouldn't be getting. And that leads people to think of themselves as discontented. And I wonder if that is also kind of what's going on here, which is every party is kind of giving a narrative of, Look over there. It's unfair what's kind of going on. The game is rigged in some way. And yet, on average, people are doing remarkably well. Now, are there problems? For sure, there are. And we should be doing more at different levels to think about different kinds of problems. But I do worry that just this politics of victimization leads people to see the world in very distorted ways. I think it's such a great point, Mihir. And it's the same on the left and on the right. It's just the story about who the victims are and who are the perpetrators. Those stories are different. But the sense that you don't get to benefit as much as you should. That is now very common. And part of what I find really fascinating is in financial data, if you look at your checking account or if you look at your savings account, you must know what's really true. And yet (laughs) you believe that you are this big exception. And we see this in other arenas as well. So people think crime has gotten much worse which is definitely not right. And there you also say that, well, where I live, it's actually not terrible, terrible, but generally speaking, crime is a much bigger problem. (laughs) And so what's fascinating, both in finances and crime, is that you look at your own situation and you think you're the exception, when in fact, as most of the time, you're much more representative of what's going on on average, people are average. I think that's true across all of these domains. <laughs> but not you, Felix. You're way above average. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> so this exceptionalism is an interesting and worrisome trend. Yeah. As I said, Felix, I confess that there's some part of this which feels artificial because of the housing prices yeah. and maybe because of 
the government transfer programs. Yeah. I hate to be like a glass half empty guy, but if people are upset when it's this good, then what happens when it's not that good? Yeah. In fact, in some sense, the cost of not seeing that things are good are exceptional because you could now say one of the things that we learned during COVID is that government assistance to households who are really in dire straits is remarkably effective. Yeah. Think about what happened to child poverty rates. We can tell many of these stories. But of course, those kinds of programs need to be supported by a general notion of, look, the U.S. is doing well, we're in a very successful economy, exactly. and as a result, <laughs> we should be incredibly generous with people who have greater difficulty participating in the wealth creation that we see all around us. But if we feel miserable about a really stellar economy, that's, of course, exactly not the conversation we can have. Exactly. One of the main issues that we face is housing affordability. Of course, the good news story that property values have gone up so much is at one and the same time this terrible story that affordability has gotten even worse over the last couple of years. But I just wish we could have these conversations from a sense of strength, from a sense of we have an incredibly dynamic, successful economy. Right. And now let's think about making the kinds of investments that would allow an even larger number of households to participate in that success. And that's not the conversation we can have if we're in denial about what the state of affairs is in the first place. And when things turn, it'll become even harder to have that conversation. Yes. So I think we should commit to a triennial discussion of the survey yes. of consumer finances. That would be great. And I encourage listeners to take a look at it. It's like this wonderfully accessible document. You can find it on the Federal Reserve website. It's just a really interesting and fascinating read. By the way, it's also an example of a government agency just doing an incredible job making data available, but also making data highly, highly accessible. Mm -hmm. If you look at the report, if you look at the charts, it's beautifully done. Absolutely. Okay, recommendations. Felix, what do you got? So I slip into your role for one episode and I have two recommendations. Oh, and then I get to chastise you for it. <laughs> How could you? <laughs> one is actually an old recommendation that I just wanted to re-emphasize. It's a podcast called The World, which is maybe a half dozen stories about what is happening in the world today. But the reason why I wanted to talk about it is it strikes me for completely obvious reasons that our attention swings so dramatically from one topic to another, in part because we have these big catastrophes that really deserve our attention. So we go from talking about Ukraine almost nonstop to now, yes, some things are happening in the Ukraine, but it's not really the center of attention anymore. Almost no one talks about just the incredibly terrible things that happen in Sudan. Khartoum, I think, is completely leveled at this point in time. Mm. We have all of these dramatic developments in Myanmar. If you wanted an interesting roundup of stories around the world, and in particular stories, I think that deserve more attention, but we don't naturally pay attention to these stories. The world is a really fabulous source, in particular because it's all reported by local journalists. So it's always hmm. a truly local angle, which is absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. That sounds great. 
And then, of course, after listening to the world, you need something that's a little more uplifting. Yeah, you might need a drink indeed. Yeah. <laughs> you need a drink or you need some Mexican music. And one <laughs> recommendation that I have is uh, Banda El Recuerdo. What is that? I don't know if it's the oldest or one of the older Mexican banda bands. It's basically a family enterprise. It was founded in the 1930s. And the person who leads the band is still from the original family. Of course, it has to have an amazing sousaphone player, which you get all the sousaphone you can possibly hope for. And no matter what the news of the day, no matter how terrible it is, uh -huh. you feel lighter right away. It's really a joy to listen to these guys. So Banda El Recuerdo and any album really that you can find will be a joy to listen to. Oh my God. That sounds like a great recommendation. <laughs> I will take a look. So what do you have for us here? I too have something to maybe lift your spirits. Fortitude is something that I admire in many people, including you, Felix, as a co-host for dealing with me. But <laughs> Fortitude is also the name of, I think, the best bakery I've ever been to. Oh my God. Okay. I love bakeries. I've previously recommended Olenstein and Rosetta, but this is a bakery in London, which I happened upon and is just so good. So it's located in Bloomsbury. And I think when you're traveling, there is nothing better than finding a good bakery. Yeah. I and agree. this is just one outlet. It's in Bloomsbury and it's located on this lovely alley. There's no indoor seating. So part of it is also just the experience of waiting in line and then sitting outside in this little alley. And they emphasize sourdough. Okay. So they have just great breads, but they also have prepared foods. And so they have great sandwiches and great beignets. Oh. I went there four days in a row and everything was <laughs> spectacular. I went there for breakfast and for lunch. And I got to tell you, it was spectacular every single time I went. And so oh I God. recommend it highly. And by the way, unlike some bakeries that I love, like, for example, Flour in Cambridge, I yes, love. Yes, it's fabulous. But the coffee, not great. But at Fortitude, the coffee is also spectacular. So Ooh, everything about Fortitude, okay. the whole experience, the food... And when you're traveling, you need a good bakery. So if you're going to be in London, I'm going to recommend Fortitude. What a recommendation. As if I needed another reason to want to travel to London. Exactly right. There you go. And this is it for tonight. Thank you, everyone, for listening. This was After Hours from the TED Audio Collective.